Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How you doing, Alan? <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Wow, that's great. And we have with us today expert Miri Eisen. We had some questions about uh, looking forward to what's going on with Iran. How you doing, Mary? I'm doing great. I'm supposed to get my second vaccination soon. Oh, wow. Me too. It, it is very exciting. It is. It's amazing how much it actually makes me feel calmer. <laughs> Isn't it something? You feel like you're about to enter like another stage of life. Like it, you, you, it psychologically feel like your your life is... And, and it's, it can't possibly... It isn't going to make such a huge difference it in the short term, right? Not in the short term, but it's very important for where Israel will be able to place itself. And at the end, it has an impact both on our arena and on our engagement with the world. So on a personal level, I just feel calmer. And I'm glad that Israel chose to take that place. It definitely is having an impact. Uh, bef- before we get to our main topic, would you elaborate on that, how, how that will have impact outside of the borders of Israel, how it'll impact Israel's place in the world? Well, we are becoming, to a certain degree, the test tube for the rest of the world for what happens to an entire country when it's the mixture of vaccinations and we also have very high level of contamination at the moment. But because we right now are the ones who are leading the world and because of our health system, which is universal health care via four different health um, HMOs that you providers. sign up to, providers, sorry. Um, what that means, for many years, this isn't new, Israel has provided the data, not what Miri is doing, what Alan's doing, what Mike is doing, but what happens to, I'll be nice, 50 and 60-year-olds, how's that, okay? If we've all had it, right? okay? <laughs> so what happens to 50 to 60-year-old men or women? And, and that's data that the entire world can use. And I'm proud of the fact that we do so. It's very different from other countries. It is not about my personal information, but it is really helping health in the world. That's uh, you know, that, can I just ask because yeah. there's a lot of the people who are claiming, well, what about personal invasion of privacy and that because they're taking mining our, our health data? What They've been mining our health data for years, we just weren't aware of it. Right. And in that sense, again, it's the data, and and you're always going to have that question, and you're always going to have that type of tension, okay? Because yes, they are mining my your data. But they're not using it about me and you. They're using it about the big numbers. And those big numbers make a really big difference because they can do it to a certain degree that what they're seeing is ages, um, gender, and all of our medical history. And in that sense, it immediately means you can cross. It isn't about 100 people out of uh, 100,000. This is the data of the 9 million citizens of the state of Israel. Right. Millions of whom have already received, over 2 million by now, have received yeah. at least the first shot of the vaccination. So that's a huge data pool. It is, and there's nothing yeah. comparative to it. And and we're already rapidly rolling out the continuation. And as I said, this has an impact on world health, not just on Israel's. Right. And well, do, do you think things like this... Well, yeah, a light to the nations that Israel plays. Do you think this is why as much as... 
you know, my students are always so concerned, like, oh, everybody's against Israel, everybody. And yet Israel plays a really normal part in, in the world economy and in, in world science and in world information. Do you think it's the we usefulness do. of Israel that's the reason? No, not at all. We're also at the forefront of the actual inventions, thinking about certainly within the technological world, and that includes within the technological world, the health world, finding vaccines, trying to contend with illnesses, and not just about our being the guinea pig database. This has to do with the fact that we have leading scientists um, at so many different facilities in Israel, universities, think tanks, in a variety of arenas. Us, and that's our forte. We do have that. We may not be number one, but our combination in that sense really puts us ahead of most countries in the world. We're punching above our weight class. I like that. Yes. So to speak. Yeah. Uh, so we, the reason we wanted you to talk to you this week was with the new Biden administration and with, it looks like Iran is pretty, I, I mean, other countries are talking about France's uh, France. Well, France is one of the countries that mentioned that Iran is developing nuclear weapons. Where are we going? Like what? Uh, it's been popping up in the news and has been causing us concern. And with now a new administration, and it was in the right in the confirmation hearings yesterday of the new Secretary of State under Biden. Right? Iran was one of the yeah. That was that Iran was actually was, kind of exciting. It was exciting, and he also said things that it's not going to make anybody who's worried. Um, less worried, but what he actually said is, is that the United States was not about to do big things without consulting with Israel. So should I give a little bit of context for people who may not have been following the Iranian nuclear issue like I have for the last 30 years? <laughs> please, be great. Okay. please. So I don't want to give a history lesson, but I do need to give some background. Um, Iran has been going down the nuclear path for over 30 years. This issue of Iran trying to turn nuclear is something that Israel and the rest of the world have been watching and worrying about from the early 1990s. And here we are 30 years on. So the good news for all of our listeners is that they're not there yet. The bad news, which could be expected, is that they're still trying. So here we are after four years of the Trump presidency, where there was a very drastic change of U.S. policy towards the Iranian nuclear issue. And here there's no way to disconnect the changing and the transitions that happened from the Obama administration to the Trump administration and now from the Trump to the Biden administration because the United States had very different policies. In a moment I'll talk about Israel's policy. But for Israel, nuclear Iran is an existential threat. But let's be clear, everybody, for the rest of the world, nuclear Iran is, I don't want to say existential, but it is a very clear-cut threat. It isn't that the world is ignoring it. There's the challenge mm -hmm. that Iran, as a country, and it's a big country, we just said, Israel, over 9 million. Iran is over 85 million people. It's a very large country. We talked mm -hmm. about science, technology, developments. Iran is an educated, science-motivated country, contrary, again, to what most people think of, you know, the hmm. mullahs and Islam and that it runs Iran. That is the regime. But you have a very advanced um, educational system, nuclear scientists, and they've had this for a long time. 
and they're trying to go down the nuclear path, and Israel and the United States and the Western world are all very worried about that, because all of us see what happens when somebody has a nuclear weapon, and that immediately means that you treat them differently, and North Korea is the obvious example, let alone Pakistan mm -hmm. or India. But Iran is different from the three I just mentioned. North Korea, Pakistan, mm -hmm. and India are not signed on the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Why does that matter? Because from the start, by the way, Israel is also not signed on that treaty. Okay, mm -hmm. let's be clear. Um, when you are signed on the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which has been for over 50 years in that sense of who has and doesn't have nuclear weapons, when you're signed on it, the international community has a say and a discussion and a dialogue. It basically says, hi, I won't go down the military nuclear bad path, but I am signed on because I do want peaceful nuclear capabilities. And that's the catch-22. power plants? Yes, and that's the catch-22 that many people don't understand because we always look at nuclear as only being about the threat of nuclear weapons. But let's be clear, Japan lives off of nuclear capabilities, mm -hmm. which are what we call peaceful nuclear capabilities, nuclear power plants, power plants and um, Iran has been building for many, many years, many, many years. You can't imagine how many. First, Germany was on board, and then Germany left. And then Russia stepped in. They've been building a power plant on the shores of the Persian Gulf. Really, I've been in the intelligence community for so many years, and they've been building that for a good 30 to 40 years, and it's never come to fruition. But parallel to having, um, being part of the NPT, Israel has said, the United States has said, Europe has said, it isn't that anybody has actually said that they're not trying to go down the nuclear path, but that they have been deviating as members of this treaty about non-proliferation, that they have also been trying under um, the radar to develop nuclear capabilities. And there are a lot of different opinions, okay? This is about opinions, we don't know. Mm -hmm. And how do you stop the Iranians from going down the nuclear military path, okay? Um, do you say, okay, but you can't have the civilian path either? If they're allowed to have the civilian path, if they're allowed to have what we call peaceful use, they're allowed to have nuclear scientists, they're allowed to have international relations that have to do with nuclear, because that's the peaceful path. And the question is where the deviations come in. And the international community, the strong-arming one, the Western one, mainly the United States and Europe, and for that matter, even Russia and China, who are much more challenging when it comes to their relationship with Iran, nobody wants Iran to have nuclear military capabilities. And under the previous, previous administration, I'm not really sure what the words nowadays what we say, but under the Obama administration, the Obama choice was to go to a negotiation, which is one way of going about it, specifically and only on the nuclear issue, and they signed a treaty in the summer of 2015. And Israel at the time, under Netanyahu, same prime minister, very much opposed not even necessarily the details of that treaty that the international community signed with Iran to say that Iran would not go down the nuclear military path. Okay, they still can go down the nuclear civilian path. But when they signed that in 2015, Israel said, you can't believe Iran. 
Iran are selling you guys stories, and they're telling you that they won't go down the military path. We, Israel, see it as an existential threat, and we think that the agreement that you've arrived at in 2015 is actually enabling the Iranians to do whatever they want. That was Israeli opinion. Okay, we never. That was the JCPOA. That's the JCPOA, which is July 2015. That had enormous implications, not just on nuclear Iran. Okay, because there's no Mm -hmm. question whatsoever that a Iran signed it. And now I now I get into the murky arena because here we are six years later, two years after the United States signed it, after the indictment. It was it was the six leading countries. It was a whole group of countries together that signed it. And the idea being that if they don't go down the nuclear path, then, then, only then, they would lift economic sanctions, it would make life easier. The nuclear military path, right? The nuclear nuclear military military path. path. Constantly, again, I want to be very clear to most people, Iran continues to go down the civilian nuclear path. The whole idea of the agreement was to stop the nuclear military path. And in the 2015 and until Trump came in in 2017, Israel said, they're going around a path, they're going around a path. We were very worried about it. Having said that, I want to be very clear, we did not ever, us Israel, okay, we're the ones who were threatened. We never showed in those years after it was signed and before the U.S. administration left it under Trump, that, that agreement, we never showed that they were breaking it during those years. There was supervision then. Mm-hmm. We would say, maybe they're going down this path. They, that, that, it, it worked. What was the main problem that Israel said at the time? Is that, okay, maybe you're supervising the nuclear, but the military nuclear, but we don't believe Iran. That's what we said. But we haven't done anything about Iran exporting terror, about Iranian missiles, about Iranian supporting Hezbollah. And we were very disturbed. And the U.S. administration under Obama at the time said, listen, we can't do everything. Let's at least do the nuclear. And there was a huge difference of opinion at the time. Okay, here we are. It's 2021. And under Trump, Trump left that agreement and said, we don't believe the Iranians. We will do harsh economic sanctions. Left the agreement, and I want to be very clear to everybody. Under the agreement, it didn't stop them going, um, trying to continue on the path. Under the economic sanctions of the last four years, it didn't stop in them at all, and nobody was there to supervise. Under that agreement, there was a type of supervision, because as I said, they're signed on the MPT. It, it allowed people to come in. Okay, I'm not saying so once that. once America broke their part, but there were multiple countries that signed it. It wasn't just the United States, but, only but once the United, the United States, States, only the United that's States, that's it. It broke it for only, Iran is no longer only the United States broke it. But as soon as the United States broke it, Iran didn't feel committed anymore because at the end, uh-huh. the United States is the main force behind all of these different things. So now the question is. So what I just happens ask one, one now? more clarifying. Sure. Sorry, I, one more clarifying. Sure. So we had we had no we have no proof between the years where America and Iran were still committed to it that they were breaking the agreement, meaning going down the nuclear military path, right? There was no proof for that. No, there wasn't. I mean, we were Is very there, worried about it, but we never showed proof. We never showed proof. And now, have do we have proof that once America left it, that they did go down that path of the military? Well, that was easy in that sense for Iran. Iran said the United States left it. We left it. I mean, from as soon as the United States left it, Iran said we're not committed. 
So there's no question that in the last, certainly in the last few months, okay, right. but even before that, and this is under the years of the very harsh economic sanctions, okay, meaning, yeah, there were economic sanctions, and they went down the nuclear path. So I'm going right. to say, a number one didn't stop it. Having said that, it was a kind of agreement. I hated it in 2015. I was most definitely part of that Israeli security personnel that said, really? But I want to be clear, it was only about the nuclear. Most of our Israeli security challenge was because it did not cover the other aspects where Iran really threatens us. And I'm going to put it up to everybody right now again, okay? So you can arrive at, I'm asking you, okay? I'm asking all of us right now. You're all sitting and listening to this and going, what can we do? And I'm asking you, what do you think? You can either arrive at agreement only on the nuclear, and that means lifting, whoops, economic sanctions on Iran. Sorry, I have a love-hate relationship with my um, um, ear pods. Mm -hmm. We all do. We all do. And all technology, yeah. Not even technology. With me, it's really the physical aspect that they like to pop out of my ear. But that's, you know, little aspects that we have in day-to-day life. Happens to me when I'm teaching and everybody's looking, and I'm like, oops, they're at one again. So, you know, it's like things I have. Yeah, but it's in in Corona times, we're all used to it, and we all. (laughs) That's where we are. Everyone's doing their best. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm going to go back to our question. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen. It's time to make policy. How do you make policy? You try and decide to yourself. You won't be able to arrive at an agreement with Iran that limits military nuclear, which is that's an existential threat and limits their export of terror in Hezbollah and their um, creation of missiles that reach Israel. Those are three different aspects. So do you do the nuclear or not? And I'm asking it as a question. I really am not saying right now, okay, go do it Mm -hmm. or don't do it. It's a real question. And what you're going to hear now from Israel is overwhelmingly going to be the Israeli voices. Don't go back to the negotiations and certainly don't sign one because it's only going to be about the nuclear. That's what we're going to hear from Israel. I know it already. I already right. hear the the usual suspects doing that well, time and time again. The drum beats of. Uh... I mean, I mean, our percept. I mean, uh, my perception is that 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 the nuclear is a big existential problem. Like we talk about, it, it rains big. It's like you know, in our minds, nuclear bombs, obviously. But you know, Hezbollah and terrorism and all that. They're they're also existential. Um, problems for Israel. You know, maybe they're lower-level existential problems, but they, you know, have serious effect on our on our society. And you know, just when we have a a, a battle with Gaza, and we know, his, you know, with Hamas, that has serious effects on our population. Yeah, but it can't eliminate our existence as a state. Hezbollah. All, all the no, damage. So Hezbollah in other words, is so it's... much stronger. I'm saying Hezbollah mm-hmm. is so much stronger, backed with ballistic missiles from Iran coming. It has has I, I don't know, I mean it seems to me that there's maybe lower longer existential but it's still existential that's and that's exactly why there is such an endless discussion within Israel between the Israeli security establishment on what that agreement was and and what it had and didn't have because it was very clear at the time that it had certain aspects and it didn't have a lot of other ones. I I think that we need to also remember that um, a little over four years ago, it was like five years ago, Prime Minister of the State of Israel 
went and addressed the joint houses of Congress in an unprecedented way, okay, where the reigning president said, go to the agreement, and they invited and allowed the prime minister of Israel to come and speak to the joint houses and to say, don't sign the agreement, okay? (laughs) And yet they both signed the agreement, and, and in that sense, do we really want to go down that path again? We have the same prime minister. The United States has just gone through, I mean, these are really between the eight years of Obama, the four years of Trump, starting now, you can't, you know, resolve everything inside the United States, but I'm very wary, in my sense as an Israeli, of us, Israel, becoming a partisan issue. And I'm very wary of the idea that with this new administration, because it's it's obviously an important part. Um, the the president of the United States, I mean, is now trying the new. I'm never, you know, the president elect, President Biden, um, uh, is appointing as a deputy secretary of state, the woman who negotiated with Iran in 2012, 13, 14, until they arrived at the agreement. She is a very significant, very impressive, amazing woman. But again, that I'm putting aside for the moment. I can disagree with the agreement they arrive at. Mm -hmm. But that's the the assistant secretary of state. It's the number two in the State Department. That's that's saying something. Right. Again, but it's also not just about Israel, right? The the Gulf states are also... So here I want to give you a totally different aspect of this Iranian thing through a view that we haven't seen before, okay? What does Iran do, which is what disturbs Israel so much, and Alan, before you described in that sense, they support Hezbollah, Hezbollah supports Hamas, Iran supports Hamas, it comes into our back door, right? They build bases in Syria. We've discussed here a bit that Iranian presence inside Syria, and, and Israel, in the last decade, has been very active in a very physical way, some of it openly, which is even more surprising, against the Iranian presence, certainly in Syria, less openly, but according to international uh, media, against Iranian presence in Lebanon. Okay? Now let's look at the Abraham Accords, at the agreements between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, which were across the Persian, Persia, Iran, the Persian Gulf, from Iran, with Bahrain, which is um, a country made up out of a majority of Shiites, which is the type of Islam that is overwhelmingly in Iran and part of that Iranian um, revolutionary regime, Islamic regime, that we now have agreements with UAE, the United Arab Emirates, with Bahrain, that both of them are literally, you know, like we would fly to Cyprus, it's closer than the flight to Cyprus. You know, it can be a 15-minute flight, a 10-minute flight. It's right across the Persian Gulf. It's very close, physically. And Iran knows that the threat, because that's what they do, the threat is that you build bases near to them. Now, think of the odd aspect Mm. that because of the agreements this last year, between Israel and UAE, between Israel and Bahrain, I'm not, I'm not talking about the other ones, because here I'm talking about the proximity, about the closeness in the physical sense. Iran is going to look and go, oh, I know that sort of thing. We build bases in Syria next to Israel, in Lebanon next to Israel, support Hamas against Israel. And that's what Israel is going to do. They're going to place planes in the United Arab Emirates, in Bahrain, let alone if there's an agreement with Saudi Arabia, which I don't see in the offing, but who knows, right? Okay? And so they're looking at it now that suddenly we're nearby. 
It's not just, that's how they're going to view it. Meaning the situation for Iran is not the same as it was in 2015. Now Israel is suddenly hand in hand. Look, if you've noticed, there have been actions within the Sunni communities in and around the Gulf right now, UAE, Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia just had a sulha. They just made up, they just, because they, with Qatar. Qatar is an additional country, which is right there opposite. It's as if, okay, another moment, there's going to be something going on. Iran, because they are totally afraid of Iran turning nuclear. They, UAE, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, are totally scared of that happening. They, these countries, view Israel as pretty much the only one that is actively going to protect itself against that threat. So in that sense, here we are now. It's not the same situation as 2015. We have these agreements. This is bringing together, and it's one of the reasons that I think in the last few weeks, we've suddenly seen Saudi Arabia get past its, because it was a very nasty boys fight between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, mm -hmm. between all the different countries. Qatar is most definitely the bad boy of the Sunni Muslim world. <laughs> Um, they're the ones who overwhelmingly fund Hamas, um, amongst others. But again, they like to take the, they're a very challenging uh, position. So here we are, okay, 2021. I have no idea what will happen, but it isn't the same situation. It isn't, oh, Biden was the vice president. Um, Wendy Sherman was the negotiator. Now we're back to 2015. No, okay, the situation has changed. Nobody's taking that back. Also, uh, John Kerry is not the Secretary of State. No, he's going to be with climate, but it wasn't so much about John Kerry in that sense. To me, at that time, that was very much something that was not just, it wasn't John Kerry that was taking forward the United States to a place it didn't want to be in, or taking President Obama to a place not being in. I actually think that that was a type of policy at the time, which again, I, I totally opposed it, okay? But it was a type of policy. No, for sure it fit with the... It came with Obama, out of, but, yeah, but, but Clinton, Hillary Clinton logic. didn't pursue it. Um, mm -hmm. I, but, but that's she's not the same, even though she has. I mean, in that background, it's a very logical type of idea, which mm -hmm. comes and says, "Let's do what we can do, even if it means, in its own way, that you may be abetting, maybe not directly helping, okay, but not because as soon as you allowed them." through the supervision under the non-proliferation treaty to sign an agreement that said we won't go military nuclear and thus you will stop the economic sanctions when you stop the economic sanctions i'm gonna i'm gonna say something very unpopular to people okay it's the same challenge that the state of israel has with hamas in the gaza strip okay you want to help the Why? two million people in the gaza strip okay mm -hmm. they live a miserable life but if you help them, you're helping Hamas because it will totally be helping the Hamas leadership, strengthening them, showing them that through their calling for the denial of Israel, calling for the destruction of Israel, attacking Israel, even if they don't have extraordinary capabilities, when you try to help that population, it will totally be helping Hamas. Now make that choice. Do you want to make that policy choice by not helping the mm -hmm. population? You're not helping Hamas, but that's really bad for the population. And at the end, we need to look at Iran in a similar way. There are 85 million people who live there. They don't all wake up in the morning and call for the destruction of Israel. They don't all want necessarily nuclear weapons. When they talk about it, they always say, we are allowed to have nuclear power 
nuclear power is also civilian power. I mean, it, they don't all support the regime. They don't all support the regime, and and even more so. I mean, in that sense, but but we can't impact them. Okay, we're in a time period where everybody around the world in our very realpolitik geopolitics, it's very challenging to try to help a population and to sideline the regime. Um, in political science, we call that regime change, and I won't surprise either one of you, it never works. Hasn't worked anywhere at any time in the 20 or 21st century. We just like to think it does. Do you, it, it, Alan was saying that Hezbollah is essentially Iran's force on our northern border. Should we see that as an existential threat with conventional weapons? Is that is that the right way to look at them? Or if we engage them, there there's certainly a more serious threat than Hamas in the south Absolutely. but is Israel but would Israel is Israel worried about losing that conventional war um, it's not a conventional war. That's one of the challenges of it. Meaning, again, our terminology has changed in so many different ways, but mm-hmm. rocket firing against Israel, as soon as they have precise weapons, it's not the terminology that we use of what we call conventional war. Then again, unconventional war also has changed. All our terms have kind of changed. Hezbollah is perceived by the security establishment in Israel as our main threat. Main Mm -hmm. threat, I'm going to ask both of you, does that mean existential? I'm asking it. I don't want us to put, I mean, again, it's an opinion. It's a question of where it goes. Hezbollah calls for our destruction. Hezbollah want Mm -hmm. to displant what they'll call, right? Okay, I'm using their words, the Zionist entity um, and give it back to Palestine. You know, that's going to be their terms. Because they don't want to say the word, they don't even want to say the word Israel. They don't usually say it. If you go into their website, watch out. If you go into the website, I do all the time. And I'm sure that all of the intelligence communities worldwide constantly look at me. But I still go into that. They have a very professional English website. Well, they're already checking your health data. They might as well check your Hezbollah data. Yeah. So when you go in and you read the way that they frame everything, they have a whole portion there about the Zionist entity and the Zionist in the news. So it's this combination. Because you always look at that and go, really? They think that we shouldn't exist? And I go, yes, really. They think we shouldn't exist. Um, In its own way, it's very sad. Because most of the Middle East, even the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, you know, the ones that sign treaties with us, that have diplomatic relations with us, and I haven't even said the Jordan and the Egypt that have had diplomatic relations Mm -hmm. with us for so many years, still don't think that the Zionist entity is a good idea. Israel Mm -hmm. is a strong country. Israel has a strong security stance, and right now... Israel is standing up against that Shiite Iran and Shiite Hezbollah, and those two threaten the Sunnis. So you're really, it's like it's in, in its own way. That's called realpolitik. It's not even mm-hmm. my enemy's enemy is my friend. In this case, it's you're strong and your actions help us, and it's found a middle ground. So Hezbollah is absolutely a threat. I would even go so far as to say, it has the potential to be an existential threat. But mm-hmm. when I say existential, it cannot right now destroy the state of Israel. And here, Alan, I would say there's a difference between nuclear, that's the destruction mm-hmm. of the state of Israel, and between Hezbollah, which is long-term. It's kind of like sandpaper, uh, but it's very, mm-hmm. it's, it's very, very it's, it's a threat, Okay. But I, I don't see it at that same 
level as the Iranian military nuclear threat, but it is absolutely a very big threat. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's. I mean, I think that that's uh, fairly uh, fairly obvious. Um, I, I don't know if we would call it a war of attrition, but it's certainly a long-standing, uh, you know, uh, conflict. It's interesting, that term of a war of attrition, you know, it's like we, we, we use it in so many different ways. The terminology that has to do with war has been evolving over the last 20, 30 years because war has changed a lot. Um, we talk a lot about mm -hmm. the war of words, the war of narratives. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. not, not again, I so don't want to compare it, but all you have to do is look at the different versions of what's happened in the United States over the last few weeks to understand that depending what um, website you read, you're going to hear a very different version of what happened in the United States of democracy. So yeah, certainly yeah. when you're talking about Hezbollah and you're talking about Iran, who are so not democracies, okay? But it's not just that. They come from within a different type of um, framing of the world. Um, an Islamic culture, Shiite Islamic culture in that sense. These are challenges which to me is the combination that nowadays, and again, I'm not saying you should, but sometimes if you can breathe deep, go into the Hezbollah website, Al-Manar, go into the Iranian English websites just to see how they frame their world in English to mm -hmm. us. And to, and, to, and to go, and then you go, oh, I'm not even talking about the Zionist entity. <laughs> but they, they, they use the terminology. To understand their worldview, yeah. And, and some of those things are very disturbing because you read it for a moment, you go, wait a second, am I agreeing with them? And then you realize how challenging it can be, that combination of playing around with the words, the framing, the terminology, and, and, cons and consistently we, Israel, are the bad guy. And so right now, in that sense, Iran, one of the, the good things that's happened in the last, um, I would say, almost decade, but in a gradual sense, is that, that it's, become, it's, come, it's been outed, okay? You can't play around with it anymore. But I want to make that clear distinction between the um, leadership and between the people. And I do that for ourselves. Okay? What has been outed? That the, the, that the leadership's language is used we can't, we can't again. Is used in, in, as in a, a weapon. As a weapon in a very cynical way. People are much more aware of that, but most people are not nuanced. And in that sense, you right. know, I feel that I can feel, you know, I can have a heart for the Iranian people, and I think that the sure. Iranian regime calls for my destruction, me and you and us, right. and in a horrific right. way. And, and I do that distinction, even though I'm not sure that the Iranian people are that nuanced. Um, the same as I do that for the people in the Gaza Strip and between the leadership of the Hamas. And, and, it, yeah. and it challenges me every day, because when it comes to nuclear Iran, um, I'm, I'm not sure how much people understand that this is not the same as Hezbollah with conventional weapons. Nuclear right. is a completely, nuclear military is a completely different set of rules, what we call rules of engagement. It's different geopolitics. Nobody has joined the nuclear arena since North Korea, right? Okay, look what happened with North Korea. Look at what this country is. And because they have a bomb, everybody treats them differently. 
and they played right. that all game. The, all the political calculus has to change around their nuclear ability now. Absolutely. And they and become Iran, almost untouchable. And Iran, it isn't just about Iran becoming nuclear. If Iran becomes nuclear, according to the international community, Israel is nuclear. That's what they say in the international media. But there's no question whatsoever that the 24 hours after Iran would avoid Lee, okay, really horrific, become nuclear, Saudi Arabia is nuclear, they'll go buy the bomb from Pakistan, they'll have it in their house within a minute. Okay, they can afford to do so, they don't necessarily do so mm -hmm. right, I mean, they'll bring over, lug in the suitcase, you know, um, 100 bombs, and, and that's it, it's like, that escalates within a minute, and again, it changes the entire dynamic of the area. Why isn't Saudi Arabia... And North Korea... Because at the end, um, it's only according to international media that Israel has nuclear capability. There's no question in that sense, but we are also perceived as in a different way because that nuclear club, which is officially made up out of United States and Russia, who between the two of them have like 100 million, I mean, it's horrific when you look at the numbers of the, no, I totally exaggerated, they only have 45,000, but like one of those bombs. But it could end human life multiple times. No, but it's like multiple, one of those yeah. bombs could end Earth. Yeah. So isn't it nice that they have 45,000, you know, doesn't that make you feel better? Um, and after the United really? States, and yeah, it is. After the United States and well, Russia. Well, one of those bombs, it would take a multiple bombs, even depends. the biggest bombs. Some of the, the hydrogen ones, some of those different ones, really, you only need like a dozen. And, and, yeah. and it, it's yeah. very scary. But, but we like ignore that to a certain degree. Um, the United States and Russia for many years have been trying to cut down on that. You know, as they said, you know, you don't need more than 100. You don't have to have 45,000. Mm -hmm. But that's a huge right. issue. Um, and then after them, you have France, the United Kingdom, and China. Those are the five who are the declared nuclear powers in the world. And everybody else in the world, signed, except for the ones that I'll talk about in a moment, signed the NPT and said, we won't go down the military nuclear path. Who has not signed on the NPT? India and Pakistan, that each became nuclear in and around the 1970s in different ways, but each became mm -hmm. so. Israel has not signed on the NPT. And according to the international um, media, we have nuclear capability. And South Africa wasn't signed, did a nuclear explosion, and then signed the NPT. And last but not least is North Korea. And as I said before, Iran is signed on that nuclear non-proliferation treaty, and yet they've gone down that nuclear military path time and time again. I do not believe them. Um, I, I think that they really do want to, they really want the nuclear military weapons, and and and, it, and and that negotiation with them because of that is a really challenging one because they really want it. And what are they willing to give up to not have that? And am I willing? And that's opposed, so, so can I ask right. you the question that you asked put out there, what you think in terms of, you know, do you do the nuclear and, you know, do you make that deal the, with them? So I don't, I think that, that in 2015, even though I hated the deal, um, I will say that that worked then. Um, you won't be able to arrive at the same deal. Okay, life doesn't repeat itself. Having said that, you can arrive at a deal about the nuclear. I don't think that you can arrive at the other things. And I'm going to breathe deep and say against all of my security background, this is driving me nuts, okay? If they can arrive at a deal that the deal itself about the nuclear has better supervision more strict supervision than what they defined in 2015, I would swallow, swallow hard 
feel that frog in my throat and go, I still think that's better than not having any supervision because then they can do basically whatever they want. But I'm really challenged by what I just said because the only way Iran will agree to a deal with supervision on these issues, when I say supervision, it means that if we have any type of information, you get to go to that site within two days. Okay, it's a total kind of supervision, it's, it's, which they didn't have in that former deal. They were allowed three weeks before you could step in, and that's a bit too long. Having said that, um, does that mean that they would take down the economic sanctions? Okay? Um, and that's the dilemma that I posed from before. You take down the economic sanctions, you help the Iranian people who are in a miserable place overwhelmingly because of this regime, and I have, I give you the catch-22 of Hamas and the Gaza Strip. I, I, so my answer is, I'm more scared of the nuclear, okay? I really am. I see it as an existential threat. But having said that, I'm like, am I crazy? Do I want to let them lift economic sanctions? So here we are. I think that people think that it's like so clear cut and you need to do this and you need to right. do that. But I do, I mean, I understand that. You're certainly not going to change the regime under the economic sanctions. But we're really uh, bad at regime change. <laughs> Nobody can do and so. North, n nuclear North Korea, which becomes diplomatically in many ways untouchable, but isn't exporting terror and isn't planning on regional hegemony of taking over Southeast Asia the way Iran is exporting terror and trying to take over the Middle East? Is that the big difference? The Middle East, not just the Middle East. And that's it's a huge difference. And that's why it's like hard to swallow that you would only stop them on the nuclear. Um, I have to say in its own way, because, um, you know, at the end, Pakistan arrived at the nuclear on its own, more or less, as did India. Mm -hmm. And from my point of view, as, as a researcher, even in a scholar, because I'm not exactly a scholar, Iran always had the scientific capacity way beyond Pakistan and India to be able to do so. Okay, Iran has. So what had, took them so long? Um, because nuclear capability. Even the civilian, they they have. They're not that. They're not that far away from it, and okay, they're 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 only you know, let's say a dozen. Mary, or so. how many years have they been? Everybody's like they're on a year away. I've been hearing that. And you know what? You know, that just goes to say kudos to all those who are working against that capability. Uh -huh. When they arrive at a place, and then there's a bug, and they arrive at a place, and then it blows up, and they arrive at a place. So that's and, the main reason you think. You know, oh, absolutely. That's called actions, uh -huh. and actions that uh -huh. nobody has ever taken responsibility for. And kudos to those who have done it. And 50 years from now, historians will be able to see the declassified explanation for why. <laughs> hey, they haven't so... declassified anything in Israel. <laughs> we already exist 72, almost 73 years. No, you won't see that in 50 years, but someday. <laughs> there's some pre-state stuff. I think there's some Jewish brigade stuff that got declassified. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, so so, so you, you, you I mean, I, I guess, should we be worried of course, right? But do we feel like uh, there there are good hands at the tiller that there are that the people driving, whether we agree or disagree, do the leadership in Israel, the leadership in in Europe, the leadership in America, do they understand the problem and they're working on the problem? It's such a wonderful question because I think that right now that's one of the biggest challenges in the world is that it depends what your opinion is on how you view. Do they understand the problem? Because if somebody emphasizes 
in that sense, you know, just do the nuclear and that means lift economic sanctions. Somebody else is going to sit and say, mm-hmm. are you crazy? And, and it depends on your worldview if you're going to step down that path or not. I think that President Biden, of all of the different people who are new right now and stepping in, is somebody who is exceedingly savvy in the foreign policy world. One of my biggest challenges in the eight years of President Obama was overwhelmingly his approach to foreign policy. Um, And I was very challenged, and I said it very openly at the time, from 2008, 9, and onward, that when you have no experience, everybody knows what to Mm -hmm. do with you. And Mm -hmm. I think that in this case, um, President Biden at least comes with a lot of experience. Not in policy, by the way. I want to remind everybody, I mean, mm-hmm. in that sense, being a senator is not the same as making policy, you know, legislation. But because of the supervision, the way that it works in the United States, because of the foreign um, intelligence Because he's the community, head of Senate Foreign Relations. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so he actually knows, you know, in that sense, the background. He has a very, very strong commitment to the state of Israel at its heart, okay, in its soul. Mm-hmm. And, and now the question is, um, also in Europe, I mean, here we are in this COVID world. Why does that mm-hmm. also bite in? Because economies right now are the biggest thing that are hurting worldwide. And I want to remind everybody mm-hmm. that President Biden needs to take care of the virus and the economy in the United States. And I think that his mm-hmm. viewpoint of this issue of Iran is still through the viewpoint of you know, how, how do you, in that sense, take United States forward? Um, you need to reconnect right. with Europe because you need to stimulate the economy. I mean, there's all sorts of different aspects that have to do with you want to stimulate the economy. So Iran right. isn't necessarily high on the list. Why is it high on the list of Europe? Because of the numbers that I said before. We don't look at it through that prism. But 85 million people is a huge market. Germany sells right. to Iran. France sells to Iran. We're nine million. Okay, we're not. We're not a huge right. market. Eighty-five million is a huge market, and so right. people want to be able to step in and open up that economic. You know, if you're selling ovens and refrigerators and washing machines, okay, that's a big market to sell to. And again, we don't think. You know, I go Iran nuclear, and everybody forgets that there's a market there. But for that market right. to exist, no economic sanctions, you have to be able to sell. And mat- that matters, too. And I, I, if I could just steal you, I know we're running low on time. We're actually over time. But I, I have to ask you, you, you were talking because it's this transitional moment in the United States. You know, you talked about how the Obama administration had its approach that it was undone by the Trump administration's approach. And then one way or another, the Biden administration is going to take a different approach. Are democracies at a disadvantage in dealing with, you know, a theocracy with Iran that has a stable maybe evil, but a stable regime, do, do you see democracy itself as being at a disadvantage? Or do you think the advantages outweigh the disadvantages, if so? Um, it's a question which, in, in its own way, it's kind of um, philosophical, which is lovely. Um, theocracies, dictatorships, always have that kind of an advantage over a democracy. Um, democracy is messy and challenging and, and all, all sorts of things. And as I think Churchill said, and I'm going to choose it over all of the other worse alternatives. Um, right. But I get to choose. 
and you get to choose. And the United States gets to choose. And with all of the polarization that's happened in all of the democracies worldwide, this is not something unique to the United States or to Israel for that matter. Um, go take a mm -hmm. little road trip in the UK or in France and Brexit in the EU. I mean, go to the different democracies and you'll see the challenges. But the fact that they are a dictatorship means at the end of the day that they have to cater to that they have their own challenges okay um and it doesn't give us advantages but it makes it something clear they are not an irrational leadership and that's the only thing i think in that sense that we have in our um, advantage in that sense i mean they're not irrational as of now um, even North Korea, which is like so bizarre, okay? I don't think of the Islamic regime in Iran as being bizarre. I hate them. Mm. They call for my destruction. But I wouldn't use the words bizarre, okay? They, <laughs> within the way that they... They're um, making rational decisions from their value they system. They are. And, and, and that value system in that sense, I mean, I'm going to... Um, right now, the Sunni world in that sense is standing around and saying, okay, that doesn't include calling for the end of the Zionist entity or Israel is not yeah. part of that. Okay, that's not in the things that are written in the Islamic creed. And I hope that when we go back to the table, the um, advantages that we hold are that we have strong values. And I think that we feel that we don't have strong values. I think that the West... The liberal West in that sense, or the democratic West, I don't want to use the word liberal, the democratic West have a very strong value set. And it doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative, each one has a very strong democratic value set. And we can use that in that sense to our own advantage. Um, it gives a very strong sense of purpose. And at the end, it's not going to be easy because Iran right now is going to needle the international community. They, Iran, want to lift the economic sanctions. To lift the economic sanctions, they need to arrive at an agreement with the United States and the West. To arrive at an agreement, they're going to agree on the nuclear path. Okay, they won't allow the other things. And now the question is going to be, well, we're going to go down that path. Mm -hmm. Are you optimistic? No, but I'm never optimistic. I live in the Middle East. Anything bad that can happen will happen, usually in the worst-case scenario. So I'm Israeli. Let's be prepared. That's the way we live. You're Israeli, or that's Miri, or that's your security hat, that, that, it's or Israeli, it's all the above? It's Israeli security Miri who says, I expect the worst-case scenario, and so I prepare for the worst-case scenario, even though I really hope it won't happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that was very, very helpful, very enlightening, a lot to think about. I'll, I'll be the guy, because I don't work in security, I'll be the guy who's optimistic that somehow, look, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not worried existentially, I'm just worried short term, the damage that can be done, and the lives that can be made miserable. I hope that's done as little, you know, as, little as possible on our way to, and, and the reason I ask that question is I, I, I do want our listeners to hear you speak out on something that I don't think we can take for granted from young people anymore. The, 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 the value acceptance of democracy itself, whether you're liberal or conservative, is something worth holding and fighting for. So Absolutely. I want our listeners not only to hear your security perspective, but I want them to hear, you know, that that's something worth, you know. So thank you again for my pleasure and yeah. we should all enjoy yeah. the upcoming year and hope that we adapt all of us amen and in, in good health, in good health. okay
Thank you, Miri. Thank you, Alan. And we don't have to log off, but I'm going to end the recording because this is the end of the episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.